We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovix. Joining me today is Andy Hosey, publisher and creator of Finding Value Finance. Welcome back to the show, Andy. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. So you and I, of course, spoke, you know, maybe maybe about a year ago on the channel here. And there's a couple things that we're going to talk about today, actually, that really have stayed with me. One of them being ratios and the other one being demographics. But maybe the best place to start today's conversation is talking about the real estate cycle, something that you think really drives many of the other cycles that we all pay attention to. So how does the real estate cycle really affect all of these other markets and, and why is it so important to you? Yeah, so the real estate cycle, it's mainly driven by demographics. And the demographics, when you look at the demographics, what you want to look for to see how it would impact the real estate cycle is large uh, increases in population. So the population has kind of increased, decreased, and increased in terms of growth rates. So when I say increased, we had an increased population called the baby boomers come through uh, home buying years, which impacted the markets. Then we had from about 1980 all the way till 2020, a demographic where the growth rates were slower. And that's the rate of growth that's slower. Not it didn't, the population didn't contract, but it was the rate of growth that was slower. We didn't have a large impact uh, of the demographic. So from 1980 all the way till about 2020, that was slowly kind of declining. And that was the Gen X uh, demographic. Uh, recently, we've had a larger demographic known as the millennials or Generation Y come into home buying years. The home buying years, um, we'll say, historically is about age 30, but it is recently getting later and later uh, stages in life. So it went to 33. I think last year it was 36 years old. So it is getting pushed out some uh, for first time home buying age. That's the average first time home buying age. And the way that that dem demographic interacts with the, the real estate market, and I'm this is kind of a bold statement, determines asset prices. Mm -hmm. As weird as that sounds. So there's four cycles to, or four stages to the cycle for the real estate cycle. Uh, I'll just start with the recession phase first. So you go into uh, a recession, which is a hyper supply, goes into recession, you go into a recovery phase, and then you go into an expansionary phase. And I'll show you a little chart here of the 18 year property cycle. So you guys can kind of see for yourself what that looks like. Um, what this is, is the 18 year property cycle. And whoops, the 18 year property cycle, when I was talking about this, this is a hyper supply phase up here where we build too many homes and the inventories swell with too many homes. And what happens is it goes into a recession. There's a deleveraging phase. You start getting delinquencies. You start getting foreclosures. You start getting um, people defaulting on their loans. And that those defaults uh, are a deleveraging of credit in the system. It's a deleveraging of the money supply because credit is money and money is credit. And the majority of the credit or money is created in the expansionary phase. That's this phase over here 
that's where a bunch of credit is created. When that credit is created, uh, it yanks interest rates up with it. And when it yanks interest rates up with it, it reprices assets, those interest rates do. So we've got an expansion phase here and an increasing interest rate environment, which reprices assets. Uh, what that basically means is the inflation comes into the system. Uh, it puts a real negative rate on bonds. Bonds sell off and that selling pressure increases the interest rates higher. And that interest rate also reprices uh, stocks and growth stocks assets in their net present value calculations. So that money likes to rotate towards commodities uh, during this expansionary phase. At the end of this phase, we go into a, a hyper supply phase. We build too many homes. Things start to deleverage and crash and it goes into a recession. And then you start back at the beginning of a recovery phase of real estate. Now, each of these phases uh, are about seven years, seven years and four years, five years for the crash. Uh, this past cycles a little a little bit longer than seven years. It's, it's more like 11 years. Uh, basically, 2009-10 would be kind of the bottom-ish all the way till about, I'd say we entered an expansion phase about 2019, 2020, somewhere in that range. So 10, 11 years. Uh, we get a mid-cycle, they call it a mid-cycle wobble. Uh, usually what happens is you get some sort of factor like a recession with increasing interest rates in the middle of it. Uh, so as increasing interest rates drive on up, things start to slow down in the system, uh, very similar to what we're going through right at this time. Mm -hmm. So we've got that increasing interest rates going up. Uh, the real estate market also slows down because that impacts the affordability. And then we see the overall market start to roll over like the S&P 500, uh, the NASDAQ and all of that, all of those uh, interest rate liquidity dependent uh, sectors, uh, cryptocurrencies as well. So I think right now that we are somewhere in this stage here, um, the recovery phase, which is this, it's 10 or 11 years, this cycle, uh, this phase here is a technology boom, S&P 500 stocks do very well because you've got low interest rates, low inflation during this time frame. This side is going to be higher rates of inflation, increasing rates of inflation, and uh, a large expansionary credit phase of new homes being built. And I know a lot of people, they uh, they kind of say that we're going to have some sort of 2008 crash. Um, a lot of people are very worried about a crash. And the crash usually comes from the real estate market uh, in a hyper supply phase. And you get delinquencies going up, foreclosures going up. And I'll show you guys kind of some data on that real quick. And I think people are misreading it. Um, it and it could be it's hard to read it because we've had stimulus money kicked in. They did QE at the beginning of this cycle and really pushed it up in this mid-cycle phase, in my opinion. So there are, we'll say, indicators that could falsely give people the thought that we could crash. Um, but in, in my opinion, and I know it may differ than a lot, I seem like a lone bull in the housing market. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're in the mid-cycle. I think that when interest rates pull back a little bit, I think that it's going to kick on the real estate market again. And the way that you would know if you're in the, the middle of the cycle uh, and the way that I've kind of think of it is if you were to lower interest rates, would demand come back and buy all the homes? If the answer is yes, you're still in the expansionary phase. If you can pull interest rates back and it doesn't do anything because you've got too many homes out there that just exceed the demand, 
then you're definitely in the hypersupply phase. So that's kind of how I differentiate between mid-cycle and the top. And Andy, if sorry to, to interrupt you for a sec here, but do you think about how, let's say, you know, rates for for people's jobs, if wages aren't increasing along with inflation and you know, basically affordability of these homes, even if there isn't, let's say, a glut of homes, if wages aren't accelerating along with it, does that play into how you're looking at this as well? Yeah. So if there's a large supply demand imbalance, um, and if we were to go over the numbers, the the imbalance in the markets that a lot of people are estimating is between three and six million home deficit. That's what we need to build Mm -hmm. Uh, in order to catch the market back up. So what happens in that type of scenario is when there's a large demand supply imbalance, you're going to have to price out a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So the affordability is going to become a lot less affordable. And so the affordability becomes a lot less affordable. You're going to price out the majority of people because you're short so many homes. Uh, But I don't, I don't think if you look at this cycle coming up, they raised interest rates very quickly which did impact the affordability dramatically very quickly. So the affordability is coming not necessarily from the home prices, but Mm -hmm. from the interest rate. And what Powell needs to do if he wants to hold this thing down is he has to hold interest rates high for a long period of time. And if he does that to to hold this demand down, so to speak, to hold the inflation down and demand down, you have to have that interest rate be held high for a long time. he, um, He runs into other problems. And I talked about this last um, interview with you. He gets kind of backed into the corner where your interest expense starts to get quite dramatic if you hold rates up for a very long period of time. And all new debt gets issued at those higher rates and old debt gets rolled over into uh, the higher rates. So their interest expense is going to go up dramatically. And the other population, the baby boomers, they're also coming in to their We'll, we'll say their stage of life where they're starting to collect on uh, government obligations, you know, government, pen, you know, pensions, uh, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all these different things. So the government could get into a situation where they're doing heavy deficit spending. They, they, they can't fund it from tax uh, revenues. So either they hold this down to hold the inflation rate down and they get kind of messed up with an inflationary deficit spending, we'll call it soup over here, mm-hmm. or they lower the, the QE or they lower the interest rate with QE or whatever uh, to make that side more sustainable. Then they kick on the housing market, which is inflationary because you get credit expansion with new loans uh, from new against new homes, which is credit expansion, which is inflation. So I think that they're in a they're in a difficult spot. So if they hold the interest rates high, I think you're completely right with the affordability, and it would definitely slow down the housing market. Completely mm-hmm. agree. Uh, but they're stuck with that deficit and interest expense and the payments uh, with the baby boomers coming into uh, retirement age. Mm-hmm. So maybe this is actually uh, we can take a small tangent here and see. Mm-hmm. I-, I wanted to ask you your thoughts on. If you believe when the Fed comes out and says, we're going to keep raising rates, we're going to keep them high. You know, I remember you you talking a little bit about when the, the Fed wasn't even thinking about thinking about raising rates. And 
of course, we all know what happened since then, the most dramatic and fastest based rate hiking cycle we've ever seen. So do you think this latest 25 basis point hike is the start of a, of a pause and or a pivot by the Fed? And, and how much weight do you put behind what Powell comes out and actually tells the markets? Yeah, I think, well, I, maybe I'm in a minority here, but um, I think Powell just does whatever the market does. I think he just follows it. So he can talk big and he's talked big before uh, and he's gone back on his word. I think he's going to do whatever the, the market's going to do to some extent. And if inflation really cools down, which I think is a possibility uh, in the short term here, um, the way that the inflation is measured for consumer price index is they take an, a the, the current number, let's say it's February number, and then they compare it to the February number of last year. Mm -hmm. And if you were to look at like, you know, home prices, you look at some of these numbers, things really start to catch up in March and April for, they call it the base effect, where the base number of last year moves on higher. And we've kind of been moving sideways. So I think inflation will definitely slow down. We're in a, we're in a disinflationary period uh, for, for, I would say, the next few months coming up. March, April timeframe is probably where I would see inflation really slow down. I don't know how he's going to hold rates high. Because the market's gonna, it's gonna sell the interest rates down. I think, uh, to some extent, and kind of force his hand. In, in my opinion, mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. I mean, I guess he could, he could release a bunch of bonds and flood the market where he keeps the interest rates high. <laughs> he could do that, I guess. But uh, I, I think the market's gonna force him. I don't think he is in full control of it. And I would say interest rates is a lagging indicator. Um, he just chases inflation. That's all they're doing. They just chase it. They don't. They don't stop inflation uh, through interest rate hikes necessarily. They can slow it down, uh, but they can't stop it like immediately. It, mm -hmm. it takes time to work its way through the system based off of how the consumer price index is calculated, which is a year over year basis. So if, if you're coming up and you ramp up that, that prices and your base is back here, you're going to get inflation, inflation, inflation until it kind of catches back up, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think he has no reason to keep interest rates high if inflation's low. Mm -hmm. So when he when he lowers that interest rate, he's going to kick the housing market back on and he's going to be the person that he doesn't want to be, which is Arthur Burns. <laughs> because it, it, it's out of his control. I mean, when the inflation is there, you get a little dip because of the interest rate. What is he going to do? He's, he's not going to hold it up there forever. I, that's my opinion. Mm -hmm. I, think he'll, I think he'll relax. We'll, we'll hold rates steady for a while and then we'll see what happens after that. Well, as we're as we're talking about just the idea of base effects, you're already basically a year behind, no matter what action you take, because you're you're always using this year over year comparison, right? In that case, yes, mm -hmm. yes, and it's it's very hard to actually contract things down. So I I, I highly doubt they would go to the extent where they're just going to crash everything very quickly, um, because that basically goes against what their stated objectives are, which is unemployment and all that stuff. Um, a lot of the employment comes from the real estate boom, you know, hiring people and, and all of these things related to this. Um, it's also related to the demographic coming up because the demographic, when they're in their 30s and they're buying houses and, and whatnot, they're also having kids. They need to buy new couches for the house they just bought. They need to buy new things, diapers, on and on and on and on. They're coming basically into speak, peak spending years. Mm -hmm. 
So this cycle is also intertwined with the demographic, which is also intertwined with their spending habits and the velocity of money. So how does all of this basically drive a commodity super cycle, Andy? Yeah, so what what I did is I tied the real estate market and the pressures of the credit expansion. I'll just I'll just back up and kind of state mm-hmm. maybe how this starts like commodity cycles, at least the commodity cycles that we've observed in history. 1970s is one in the mid 2000s. We also had real estate uh, expansionary phases during those um, cycles. And usually what happens is credit or money comes into the system and it overwhelms the system. We call that inflation. So it overwhelms the system. It basically puts everything into a shortage. And then what it does is says, go produce more of this product and this product. And all these products are more or less comprised of commodities. So it feeds all the way down. It says, go get me commodities. And they say, well, we don't have any. (laughs) And then the price goes up. So the inflation puts pressure on commodities through that, we'll call it that trickle down effect or however you want to call it. And it puts demand on commodities. And if there's a, there's a lag between that credit creation and the commodity expansion. And if that commodity can expand very quickly, uh, you don't get a gigantic uh, problem in the system. Uh, so think of it as commodities and the, the the rate that you can increase commodities is your GDP. And then your uh, credit expansion is your money supply. So it's just, it's just keeping in balance the money supply in relationship to the gross domestic product. So as long as these two are in balance, you don't get much inflation. If this one starts to increase very much, which is your M2 money supply, if that starts to take off and your GDP gets stuck, let's say you've got uh, supply problems with commodities, now you've got an imbalance between money creation and things being created in the economy. Which which we saw a perfect example of over the last two years. Yeah, but so I think I don't think it's a supply chain problem necessarily. I think it's more that they created so much money that it just put everything into a shortage. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, they just pumped the system. They also did QE, which held the um, interest rates down. I'm like, what are you doing during an expansionary phase? You're just going to blow the housing market up. <laughs> and that's what they did. Um, what that is telling us is exactly where we're at in the cycle is we've got a large uh, demographic coming into home buying years wanting to buy homes. And they held interest rates down. And what happened? The house prices went ballistic because you had the buying pressure there. So what's coming ahead of us is not, I don't think it's like the 70s and I don't think it's like the 2000s. Um, We've got this large credit expansion phase from real estate. He's going to have to keep interest rates higher, which is then going to put the pressure on deficit spending. And what the problem is, is we can't grow GDP that fast because if you look at the commodity side, We've got deficits and, and, and difficulties of increasing mines on the supply side. So we've got some serious supply side problems in commodities in the mid to late 2020s. And I'm not talking like little stuff, like these are big deficits. Mm-hmm. Uh, these deficits extend across many different commodities. It's not just one uh, asset or sector. Uh, we can see it in uranium. We can see it in nickel, copper, cobalt, lithium, graphite. Um, oil, nat- natural gas, maybe not so much. Uh, that that depends, but I would say definitely oil. Uh, and then you kind of look across. It's like how do you how do you solve a supply side 
problem, which takes 10 years or, or longer to fix in most of these mines, how do you fix that if it's across a, a, a high number of different commodities? I think we could maybe do it with maybe one commodity and focus our efforts, but I think it's going to be pretty rough. And I can show you some charts here real quick on what some of these look like and maybe a very interesting chart that I've been looking at where it's like, what is going on with this chart? So let me pull it up real quick um, and I'll share it. This is in trading view. So what this is, this is the producer price index in relationship to the consumer price index. Uh, it is a ratio. The producer price index is more or less your input costs or commodity costs for companies. And then your consumer price index is the back end cost of what things charge to retail people. So when you look at this, we've been in this gigantic downtrend ever since uh, 1940s is the beginning of this chart all the way down to the bottom of 2000. And what that means, if you're to kind of think of it, is uh, we were in an, an era where we had cheap energy and cheap commodities that were plentiful all around us. Mm -hmm. And they were easier and easier to extract, basically lowering the cost of, of a lot of these things that we can that we can produce. So think of the cost and the um, the ease of, of companies converting commodities to usable products. Uh, has been pretty easy during this this phase. Now we've got a double bottom that's basically uh, coming up, and a double bottom is just a pattern that shows us that, that we could be bottoming, and we could be going up into a, a phase where the commodity price is going to outpace the consumer price index. Think of it as an inflationary period. Uh, as this thing goes up, it's inflationary. So this is 1970 all the way to 1980. Mm -hmm. That's an inflationary period was when these go up. This was 2000 all the way until 2008. That is an inflationary period. And what I think is happening is we're in the middle of this credit expansion phase of real estate. Uh, we could be having problems with government spending in terms of deficits, which, which would also be inflationary. And we're seeing problems in some of these bond markets as well, like Japan and, and we'll say UK. But when I'm looking at this, in this chart, I'm going, there's something different here. This is putting in a double bottom. What if this goes higher? And if that goes higher, you're going to see a world that looks very different than the world before. The world before and what we knew it looked like this, where we always had kind of a, a energy source or a commodity that we could expand into. This and I, and I can't tell you the exact origins, if the origin is from the supply side, because I think we're going to have supply side problems, or if the origin is from the printing side, because you could also have uncontrolled printing, which will outpace your, uh, we'll call it your GDP, which would force this up as well. Or it's a mixture of both of those things, a mixture of supply constraints and uh, credit creation mm -hmm. that are, are going to be unmatched in the future. So this is one thing that I'm looking at, um, kind of interesting. And then I also look at the M2 money supply in relationship to GDP. So you can see, even though in the 1970s, our M2 to GDP was kind of controlled in, in the 70s and 80s timeframe. We were, we were 
producing goods and products at the same time we were increasing the M2 money supply. But something happened in 2009 where we basically broke out and we did uh, a bunch of, we'll call it printing of money. And that printing of money went into assets over in the financial side. And right now it's going to rotate over into the commodity precious metal side. And we've got a lot of money that was created at a much faster pace than gross domestic product, which means we could have a very inflationary, um, a very inflationary period ahead of us. Because when that money rotates, and if it rotates into commodities, that'll push the commodity prices higher, which then will be seen by the consumer price index, by the PPI and CPIs. So that's that's how we measure inflation. I know a lot of people say inflation is the increase in the money supply, and I would say that's partially true, but that's not how we measure inflation. We measure inflation through the consumer price index, which is the price of housing, the price of energy, and the price of a lot of these commodities that work their way through into, into consumer products. But uh, I would say definitely that the money supply increasing does <laughs> is infl- it is an inflationary pressure, which will push or pull, pull or push the consumer price index higher. Mm-hmm. So I do agree with that, though. So, you know, you, you kind of touched on a point that I did want to touch on here. You know, ratios are one of your three pillars of investing. And it seems like market flows are one of your other ones, right? Yeah. So ratios are a way to identify where the money is located in the system and how mm-hmm. that money is pricing the assets. Uh, ratios also will tell us how the basically where we are in the cycle. So if 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 I were to say that we are in an expansionary phase of real estate, we'll, we'll do a CRB to S&P 500 ratio here. So this is the commodity to the S&P 500 ratio. So if we were to look at the expansionary phase of real estate, this is the expansionary phase from this circle to this circle down here. Mm-hmm. The expansion or the recovery phase, sorry, the recovery phase is from circle to circle. The recovery phase of real estate uh, is a low inflation, low interest rate environment. And we went into a hyper supply phase of real estate here. And what happens is the money starts to flow differently and it flowed away from commodities, which is the CRB index, into the S&P 500. And what this is telling us in this ratio is that we were at the peak of a commodity boom and we're at the bottom of a commodity bear market down here. You could also conversely say we were at the bottom of the stock market and we're at the peak of the stock market. Now, these ratios, they don't just go up straight. Uh, I know a lot of people say, well, you know, you said that commodities are going to go higher. They don't go up straight. Mm-hmm. Uh, they go up in waves. And right now, I think what we've done is we've done the first wave here and we've had a pullback. And then I think we're going to get another wave uh, three is what we call it. And I, I actually wrote wave three there. There it is. This is going to be a wave three that's coming for uh, commodities to outperform the S&P 500. So I think the way that the way that this is positioned for the commodity to S&P 500 is telling us that we have a long way to go higher for commodities to price themselves to a top mm-hmm. against stocks, against whatever other asset. So we have a long way to go for this to reprice itself. Uh, I think it's going to take some years and I think it's going to do it based off the expansionary phase of real estate. Now, the question is, can the expansionary phase of real estate be stopped? 
And I'm going to say, I don't think it can, but it can definitely be slowed way down. So interest rates can slow it down through the affordability of home buying, mm-hmm. which will slow the pace of credit expansion. Uh, but I also think that people will, I'll, I'll say there'll, there'll be some sort of psychological normalization with higher interest rates where people will say, I don't think rates are going to go back down, screw it. I'm just going to go buy a house in the next you know year or two. So I think there's a combination of things that could happen where even if interest rates were to stay steady, you could see the psychology of market participants kind of come around and say, I'm not going to wait for interest rates to come back down. I'm not going to wait for house prices to crash. I'm just going to go buy something. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's going to happen too. So it's they'll, they'll, they'll be singing victory, even though the rates are high, I still think the market's going to come back because that buying pressure is persistent and it's there. Uh, so that persistence of the demographic wanting to buy homes, wanting to start families, wanting to spend money is there no matter no matter what the interest rate is. Uh, it just may slow everything way down in terms of affordability. S- slow it down and and maybe even defer it. But like you say, it's, it's there no matter what, right? Yeah, I don't think it can completely stop it because if they were to lower the interest rates, the demand would just come in and buy again. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the pressure is there to buy, the inflationary push is there, uh, but I don't know if they can stop the whole thing altogether. I can't think they can, I mean, they can crash things temporarily, but they can't stop this persistent pressure. Much like, it's much like the baby boomers coming into home buying years from 1970 to 1980. Uh, we also had large demographic pushes, even from the 1940s all the way till 1980. That was a very large inflationary period the entire time. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't know if they can stop this, but I think they can definitely slow it down. Mm-hmm. One of the other factors that has been pointed to that really could affect, let's say, energy prices and, and just demand for a lot of commodities is is China reopening. So how do you think that mm-hmm. is going to affect the rest of the world's supply of energy and commodities at this point? Yeah, so they're, they're a large consumer of, of, we'll say, commodities. They make a lot of the products that uh, people consume around the world. Uh, so they're a big driver of commodities just in general, energy and all of the base metals and stuff like that. So I think them, they basically went through, I'll say, kind of a real estate hyper supply phase kind of crash going on. Uh, I think they're trying to bottom out. They have rates that are very, very low right now in China, and they're trying to re-stimulate their economy. So they've done stimulus. They've put stimulus money out there. They've got really low rates. Uh, they're basically entering a recovery phase of their real estate cycle uh, over in China. So I think with them using so little energy, um, we'll say per capita, and them being in their, I'll call it the S-curve of consumption of oil and energy, uh, same with India, I think commodities are going to get consumed at copious rates uh, over there uh, because of where they're located and how much little energy they use to begin with. So I think their energy consumption per capita is going to go up uh, for both of those countries, which are the two largest countries in the world. And it's going to put heavy pressure on commodities uh, to go higher. So I also think that we're not finding as much commodities as well uh, to, we'll say, develop new mines, develop new oil fields, develop new natural gas fields. And I think at some point we're going to deplete our cheap energy 
and we're going to go towards more and more expensive energy. And that could have a, we'll call it a higher level of inflation in the system uh, because of the constraints and, and the price of a lot of these different commodities. Uh, I also think going to a renewable world, electric vehicles, uh, they're all incredibly commodity intensive, mineral intensive. Uh, an electric vehicle, I think, is 16 times more mineral intensive than an internal combustion engine vehicle. So we're going to see a lot of pressure on commodities from the demand side based off of the S-curves and the energy consumption of China and India. And then the we'll call it the first world countries that are trying to move away from a fossil fuel uh, energy source into these new energy sources, uh, which is just going to put, I'll, I'll just say, immense pressure, upward pressure on all commodity prices. And if you look at a lot of the commodities and the mines and all that stuff around the world, uh, we've got a lot of really old mines and we don't have a lot of new mines with gigantic, uh, we'll say gigantic production potential. So I think there's going to be a big squeeze on the commodity side, uh, which could definitely lead to other, we'll say, financial problems in the system. Uh, because if your GDP can't grow and your M2 money supply has to grow by the design of the system, uh, then you're going to get an imbalance between money creation and the supply of commodities, which is your GDP factor, so to speak. So, Andy, you know, as we saw these rounds of QE, which you pointed out before, a good amount of that money all went into the financial services and, and the basically the, the broad equity markets. So this underinvestment in the actual production of commodities and energy is basically what you're describing here, right? Yeah. So what that is, is the whole system is primed with money and it's all hiding over in financial assets right now. Um, it's all over in uh, crypto. It's in S&P 500 and growth technology stocks. Uh, it's also in bonds. So what's happening We'll look backwards to look forwards. The mid-2000s, that commodity bull market occurred in a gigantic downtrend uh, for a population growth that was kind of coming back down, in a declining interest rate environment. In a declining interest rate environment, it was a mini commodity boom that happened because the bond market didn't really, I'll say, sell its bonds and transfer into another asset. The money kind of stayed there because it was generally in a declining uh, trend. And we can look at that here real quick. I'll show you what that looks like. This is the 10-year yield over a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. This is a rising interest rate environment. That was the 1960. This was it started in the 1940s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and ending in 1980. Then we went into a very large declining interest rate environment from 1981 all the way till this breakout. Uh, in 2022. And what this is, is this mini boom that happened was this guy here. That's a mini boom. So even though everyone thinks, because a lot of us experienced that uh, commodity market boom there in the circle, that's a mini boom because the interest rates were still falling. The money never really rotated in mass out of bonds. So that money was still in bonds. We were still in a declining interest rate environment, and we didn't get the full kind of 1970s uh, pressure like we did in commodities and precious metals. 
But now we've got a new shift to in increasing interest rate environment. We've broken that trend. And right now, I know it's coming back, and I do think it could come back for some period of time. Mm -hmm. And what that's going to do is they're going to get stuck in that situation, the Federal Reserve, I think, because when the interest rate comes back, this is the 10-year yield. As the yields drop, we'll come to some level down here, or maybe we do a full retest out of that breakout. People are going to say, uh, all right, those those mortgage rates and yields came down. I'm going to go buy some homes. And then that inflationary pressure comes back. Mm-hmm. That inflationary pressure coming back is going to increase interest rates again, and we'll get another wave of inflation. Uh, so that's, and, and the reason this is going to be so much more profound is we're coming towards a cycle where I think people are losing trust in bonds. Uh, we're seeing the Jap- where the Japanese are having like this bond crisis. UK gilts had a bond crisis and it's kind of moving around the world. The, the inflationary pressures and the commodity supply constraints could put a lot of pressure on currencies. Um, currency is the pressure release valve, so to speak. So when interest rates go up and let's say they don't want interest rates to go up fast enough, what do they do? They do quantitative easing. They buy a bunch of bonds. That is inflationary though. They have to print money and buy bonds and that money goes to whoever was selling those bonds. So that is inflationary. Um, so in order for them, if they want to save a bond market, they're going to, th- that the pressure release valve, if they want to save bond markets is the currency, they're going to, they're going to devalue the currency. Mm-hmm. So that currency then goes into, into the system, which is inflationary. And then that currency is going to say, Hey, I want commodities. I want to buy things. Where, where are you? And if you've got commodity constraints, it says, look, we are growing this currency at a faster pace than GDP, and you're going to get inflation. And what that's going to do is if people get scared enough, because now you're playing with emotions. If people say, I can't get a return in bonds, I'm leaving bonds, and everyone says that all at once, then you've got a bond pro- a problem. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening in some of these countries. That could happen here as well in America. If that starts to happen, then your precious metals are going to look oh so precious, especially the things that are physical in your hand, because everybody's going to want it at that point, because now they're going to figure out how can I preserve my purchasing power over a long period of time. And then they're going to realize that real physical assets will also be ultra valuable because I'll kind of just make this statement here. Um, Assets are priced dependent on the market conditions. And I'll just give one example. I've given this example before. If you're in a world where water's plentiful, it's free. Uh, That's where it's free in all these cities. You can just go to a a drinking fountain and get a drink. If you're in the middle of a desert and you have no water and you are literally, um, you know, starving of thirst, so to speak, water is invaluable to you. The same thing happens with markets. Markets price assets based off of the conditions that the market is trading under. A high interest rate environment that's increasing. If people are worried that bonds are not going to be a good investment for a long period of time, if you're in a cheap energy world looking backwards and you're looking forwards and energy is going to be a lot more expensive. And let's say the psychology of people and, and the knowledge of, of, of the majority of people say, you know what? I think we've got energy problems. I am going to shift my preference of how I invest to something else. Then what you're going to see is you're going to see people value things and price things differently. And if commodities are constrained and 
I'll just say this base metals and all these different commodities are just a function or a derivative of energy. Um, energy yanks them out of the ground. It mm -hmm. processes it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So let's just say the energy intensity of, of metals is very high. People are then going to reprice metals to a, a, an ungodly amount uh, and things that have embedded energy in it. Uh, let's say physical homes, physical cars, all these different things that take a lot of energy to produce. Uh, they're all going to get repriced differently in a future world versus maybe the world that we came in, uh, came from. The one thing that would change that is the cost of energy and the plentifulness of energy. So if we find a solution where we can implement something that is very cheap to produce energy, that I think um, is something that could change this entire dynamic that I'm talking about. So Andy, something that we've kind of touched on a couple of times here is looking at different ratio levels when comparing two assets for, let's say, historical valuation or, or context. So is there anything that you have changed your mind about since we last spoke about analyzing any of these ratios? Hmm. I would say uh, no, because the ratios just tell you where you're at in terms of market conditions. Um, so it's, it's just painting a picture. So I think that the process or the strategy of using ratios is I would say the only way that I know how to make uh, we'll, we'll say purchasing power gains in the system. Uh, it's kind of like going to the store and buying a, a can of beans. Uh, what you do, what most people do, and maybe not everybody, but what most people do, if you want to be a value guy, you're going to buy the cheapest per ounce of, of can of beans that you can find with the highest value, mm -hmm. the highest quality of bean or whatever you want to say. So you're looking at it from a dollar per ounce um, valuation. Uh, that's how you do it in anything. So if you want to buy more of, of let's say, houses or real estate, you're going to have to buy an asset that appreciates against real estate faster. You know, So it has to gain purchasing power. Um, I don't know how, by definition, uh, you could be wrong with using uh, ratios. It, the only thing I would say is ratios tell you where the money is at and where it isn't. It will not tell you the time frame that it's going to uh, rotate. Mm -hmm. So that's why I tie in the market conditions with the, I call the three pillars. The market conditions is, is what basically gives you the changing market conditions where the money can rotate. The ratios tell you where it's at and can give you an accurate picture of where you are in the cycle. And then technical analysis is the last one that I use, which basically says from an unbiased opinion using just raw chart data saying, look, the human herd mentality, the psychology of humans is changing. It's putting in these patterns, bottoming patterns to um, rotate the funds differently. It, it's the, the three put together kind of makes you this lethal investor because it's important to one value assets, which is ratio is the way to value assets. And it also gives you a picture of where you are in terms of the cycle. Mm -hmm. Market conditions tells you, you where you are in the cycle, what it looks like. It gives you this framework and strategy to think about of how money rotates during the cycle. And then technical analysis. Yeah, that's just the icing on the cake because that just says if humans interact under certain market conditions, um, you can see how they are interacting through the price patterns or price movements and how they're changing and, and creating these patterns. 
So you're you're basically saying, you know, if, if you want to become an excellent investor, uh, like like bar none, it's not being a good technical analyst. It's figuring out what is driving the humans to behave the way that they are. Then you look at those leading indicators and you say, are those leading indicators for the market condition changes still intact? If they're still intact, remain long those certain assets. If they're not intact and they're starting to change, you then look at the charts and you say, are humans behaving in a way where this is changing? If the if the leader leading indicators are rolling over and the humans are interacting with each other for a rollover, then you know that thing is done, that asset class. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's kind of how I evaluate all this stuff is I look at the market conditions, say, we're, this is where we are in the cycle. This is what the technical analysis is showing us. And then I just put it all together. The ratios are in agreement with it. Mm-hmm. So what are the, some of the most dramatic ratios that you're watching right now that you're paying attention to? Is it you know natural gas versus crude, energy service companies versus crude, gold versus gold mining companies? Where are you really focused on right now? Man, you really did your research there because uh, you nailed all the ones that were cheap. <laughs> That's, that's my job, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's awesome. Uh, yeah, so uh, platinum is one. Uh, platinum. So this is just a platinum versus uh, dollars. So this is uh, US dollars per ounce. Platinum's just got a ridiculously awesome looking setup here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I start kind of looking at this. What this is, is we generally get a, a three wave or three hump uh, consolidation period. That's what these one, two, threes are. We got this three-wave consolidation. It had a false breakout. That was the, the crash of 2020, March 2020 crash. We broke out of this pattern and we did a retest. That's what we've got a retest. And we're starting to break higher here. So I do think over time that this is going to work its way on higher for platinum. The way that I look at the ratios, so I'm going to scroll down and look at some ratios real quick. So if we were to look at the ratios of platinum to to gold. This is what tells us market conditions. And this is what tells us um, when things are turning. Uh, I, so uh, one, of, one of my buddies, he calls this the Batman pattern. So you put the little eyes there. That's a topping pattern. Uh, we call it the Batman pattern. Uh, but that was a, a topping pattern for platinum to gold ratio. This is extremely cheap up here at about 2.3. And we went all the way down to uh, a bottom of 0.39 on that false breakout. Uh, we have a little declining or falling wedge pattern. We broke that falling wedge pattern here. It's the break of the upside of this pattern right at this location here. We broke out. A lot of these do retest moves where they, they break out of the pattern. They retest to the upper trend line of the pattern. And we are kind of right at a very low, cheap level where platinum is inexpensive to gold. So that is signaling that platinum could be a potential investment. So the next thing I do is I say, say, okay, let's price platinum against a bunch of other metals. So this is platinum versus palladium. Uh, Last bull market at the peak, we were at uh, a five and a half ratio. Mm -hmm. Uh, What that means is one ounce of platinum can buy five and a half half ounces of palladium. Right now we're at 0.62. We are down here in the gutter. Um, What this is telling us is that the market conditions, this is a disinflationary recovery phase of real estate. This is an expansionary phase of real estate. And if we're coming into an expansionary phase of real estate, uh, I think that platinum has a good chance of outperforming palladium uh, and get back to what I would consider to be a more normal uh, ratio. Uh, A normal ratio is not 0.62. 
Uh, I would say on average, it's somewhere around two, two and a half. Uh, and it's not uncommon to get above five during very uh, favorable market conditions for platinum. So we could see a vast outperformance of platinum in relationship to palladium. Uh, we also have plat platinum substituting palladium because of this price differential in catalytic converters. And it does take some time for that to work its way through mm -hmm. because it has to be designed for it. And then we've got platinum to uh, silver ratio. And I know that we've got a lot of silver guys. They think that silver is the cheapest in acid in the world. Uh, I would argue that platinum is actually the cheapest, one of the cheapest assets in the world uh, to invest in because the platinum to silver ratio is at 43. And the peak back in the last kind of mid-cycle bull market was 150 ounces. So in my opinion, and the way of this falling wedge and the way that this is breaking out and doing the retest here, I think platinum could outperform all other metals uh, in terms of precious metals and be a pretty good long-term investment uh, for the next four, five, six, seven, eight years, depending on how this, how it moves against the other assets. Mm -hmm. um, another one is uranium. Uranium is also very cheap. It's under the cost curves. And we saw dramatic uh, declines in the uranium to gold ratio, the crude oil to gold ratio uh, at the bottoms of 2020 and 2021. So there are a lot of opportunities in the markets right now, uh, given some of these sectors where you can get, you can get very outsized returns. Now, there's another thing in technical analysis that I also kind of look at. And uh, when we look at these charts, the size and the volatility of these patterns that are created uh, they're called fractals. Mm -hmm. uh, fractals are repeating patterns that happen on different time frames. Uh, a fractal is much like your hand. Uh, so the first movement, you can say, well, your palm measurement, and I'm just going to say in general, your palm measurement is generally a good indication of how long your fingers are going to be. Uh, larger palms have larger fingers. It's the genetics of the human being. Uh, when I look at a chart, I look at the genetics of the ch chart, so to speak. Uh, the fractal and the size of the fractal patterns uh, can tell us how big the potential moves could be in the future uh, of a lot of these different companies. So when I look at all this, uh, I take that into consideration. I look for where are the best sectors to look at? Are they bottoming and are they cheap against other sectors? If it's yes, 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 they're bottoming, they're cheap. I dive into those sectors, put a lot of my effort and focus into those sectors, and I start looking at the fractals and the fundamentals of the companies to find the best uh, potential investments in those areas. Because generally, the companies are more or less just a leveraged play uh, to the commodity price. Mm -hmm. So as you as you said, there's there's those really the three keys that you want to look for. Do the energy services companies really check all those boxes for you right now as well? Yeah. So if the way that I look at it, there's a couple of sectors, uranium right now and energy service look very, very uh, promising. I'll just mm -hmm. say that. Um, the one thing I like about energy service and the one thing I like about which used to be exploration production right before it, um, they've got infrastructure in place already. So they've got the cash flow generating capacity already in place. Now we're just waiting for the market conditions to basically turn around and have the money flow out. Mm -hmm. 
And I think it's happening. We can see bottoming patterns in energy service uh, against a lot of different sectors. It's starting to outperform. It's it's putting a bottoming in with large falling wedge patterns. They're breaking to the upside. And I'm doing a lot of deep diving into energy service companies and, and helping people out <laughs> on identifying what companies I really like based off of the fractals and the fundamentals and the potential earning per, earnings per share growth. Um, if you're wanting to make, I'll say, lots of money in the most predictable way, um, you want to be looking for companies that have infrastructure in place that has the cash flow generating potential in place already because it really reduces your risk. If it's already in place, now you're just waiting for the commodity or the sector to turn around. And if you can accurately identify when that sector's turning around, then it's just a matter of time. What makes it a little bit more different, a lot of, we'll say, kind of newer retail investors, what they like to do is they like to pile on the risk. And they pile on so much risk that I think that the probability of success really declines. Uh, so they'll pile into these like small junior gold and silver companies, and I don't have anything against them. I just think that mm -hmm. the probability of success and the ability for those companies to to actually generate cash flow in any, we'll say, meaningful way in a, in a reduced time frame is very difficult for them. So basically, you're kind of buying, I'll say, a lottery ticket to some extent, uh, some 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 I'll say somewhat gambling to some extent. Uh, on some of the companies, especially if you're not really looking at them and, and doing your due diligence, mm -hmm. uh, I just haven't seen the success rates, in at least in my portfolio, on a lot of these very junior exploration plays. Uh, and I just don't have the uh, the competitive advantage that maybe someone who has a geologist on their team or something might have. Mm -hmm. So I've really focused on companies that have cash flow generating infrastructure and capacity in place where we can just get that market condition to turn around. And these things just rocket like no other. Um, some of them can go 5, 10x, or even up to uh, 50 plus x, we'll say potential, depending on how brave you are to buy a bottom. <laughs> so, Andy, could you show us maybe a ratio chart of how you're looking at these, these energy service companies, let's say compared to the price of crude oil or something like that? Yeah, so the one thing I would do and look at would be kind of like a an ETF versus an ETF. Mm -hmm. So OIH versus XOP. So this would be the energy service companies versus, uh, so this is OIH is the energy service companies. XOP is your exploration production companies. And what I'm seeing here is we're seeing a basically a falling wedge that came right into the, the, the tip there and it's broken out to the upside. Now, with this ratio, what I'll do is I'll say, okay, energy service is cheap to XOP. I'm going to dive into the energy service companies and see what their charts are looking at. Maybe we can look at one together. Um, but this is this is something I would look at is OIH to XOP, or I would look at OIH versus REMX. REMX is the rare earth metal ETF, mm -hmm. uh, and OIH is, again, the energy service. And we can see a broken down trend line. You can also put these on logarithmic or not, but it's a broken downtrend line and we're starting to move higher against rare earth metal ETF. So that is cheap. It's on the cheap side. We can also look at say the energy service companies versus a copper ETF like COPX. And you can see that again, we have 
Hopefully it loads in there. Maybe I didn't put it in there. We've got a broken downtrend line that's broken and it's based out and we're starting to move higher again. Mm -hmm. And this is going to take time. It's going to trend higher highs, higher lows. Uh, Nothing goes straight up. It's not just going to do this. Uh, You're going to see things kind of move up and down in, in a trending fashion like that. So right now we're seeing OIH, which is basically cheap against uh, most everything. Now we can take two. I know GDX is pretty cheap as well. So this is OIH versus GDX. And we had a very cheap uh, OIH even against GDX down here in uh, 2020. And I would say over this time frame would be a good spot to be looking at some of the energy service companies. Uh, and GDX is very cheap against a lot of other things. Now, if we were to look at, say, something like a, uh, and we'll go to the XAU to gold ratio. So this is the gold and silver mining companies versus gold. Uh, this is another way that you could evaluate a sector. You could take the ETF or, or the individual company and compare it against its commodity. That's like standard practice for most uh, technicians and and what people do. Mm-hmm. This is the gold and silver mining companies versus gold itself. And what I've got here is I've got this long downtrend line and we need to break that downtrend line. What that means is that we're in a downtrend. Everything's trending lower and we want to break that trend. We want to go and break into an uptrend. So what I call this line is you need to break this line for for happiness, for gold and silver mining owners to be happy uh, because we're going to see a bullish case not just for gold, but also for gold and silver mining companies when this starts to break and move higher. Uh, There are some good things that we're seeing out of this, though. You can obviously see a very big downtrending pattern. Uh, And this has started in the year 1996 was the peak. And it's been in a downtrend the entire time. And we never broke out during that mid-2000s commodity bull market. But we can see promising things as we kind of zoom in here. We can see a low, the low is coming up higher. And if we're making higher lows, we'll eventually make our way into this trend line and hopefully break through it. Mm-hmm. So that is something that I'm watching uh, quite closely because when this breaks out, we're going to have someone, you know, we're going to have some fun times in the gold and silver mining companies uh, if this works to break out. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have, we can take like an XOP divided by crude oil. So this is the, exploration production companies versus crude oil. Um, We can see that there's a downtrend. See if I can kind of move it over. You can see the downtrend line coming through here. And we broke that downtrend line September 2021, where we're going to see an outperformance of of the exploration production companies in relationship to crude oil. And this kind of all, you can stack these up too. If XOP is going to outperform crude oil and energy service is going to outperform XOP, that means that energy service is going to be very highly leveraged to crude oil. And we can look at that together. That's OIH versus crude oil. And this is just one, more or less, one gigantic leveraged play to um, to crude oil. Not a clean downtrend line here, but you can kind of see a topping pattern, a, a head and shoulders. It broke all the way back down. Yeah, we, we use all these kind of Things that's a head and shoulders that broke down, and then now it's starting to base out and start to move higher. So this is very positive for uh, OIH, and it just started happening in June of 2022. So there's a lot of opportunities out there, and you know I'll give you 
here's one. I, don't, I won't talk about individual companies, but mm-hmm. uh, just kind of overall sectors. But yeah, energy services is, is one of the the top. I think uranium also uh, is a sector. I, I, do you want me to look at some of the uranium ticker symbols too, or? Uh, sure, that'd be great if we could we could go over everybody. a couple of okay. those. Yep. Again, I think I think all of this just speaks to something we've talked about many times on this channel is the underinvestment in a lot of these sectors, and this rebalance once it once it starts to come back into the into the fore, you know, the idea that these very important sectors aren't going away, and the underinvestment is going to rear its ugly head, unfortunately, I think. Yeah, and, and URNM, URNM is a beast. Now, remember I talked about a, a, a plentiful energy environment looking backwards, mm-hmm. uh, cheaper costs of energy, and then going forward, we could have a more expensive energy from oil, natural gas, coal, and some of these other ones as things deplete. Uh, but uranium is, and nuclear, I should say nuclear in general, nuclear could be something that could really be a we'll call it a savior to uh humans (laughs) and i think this is one of the solutions that we have to adopt it's not really a want it's a have to it's not dependent on weather um i also talked a lot about the mineral intensity of renewables and electric vehicles and all these other things uranium is one of the least mineral intensive uh solutions so if you were to kind of piece this all together and say well what would be a a potential solution for our energy problems in the future. I think nuclear is one of the largest, we'll say, uh, one of the best answers to that solution because it has low mineral intensity. It has high energy returns on investment and minerals. And we can pump this stuff up. I think we can produce it quite quickly uh, and pump it through the system if we have maybe, say, like a standard um small module reactor or something like that. So I think mm-hmm. there are some really good things that are occurring in the nuclear side, which could just be phenomenal for humans in general. But uh, right now I'm taking OIH and we saw the energy service companies were very strong against a bunch of different um, sectors and uranium's outperforming uh, OIH. And it's still pretty cheap uh, on, on, I would say it's pretty even and how expensive these are in relationship to each other. So I think we could see an outperformance of uranium here in the short term. Uh, and if you look at the individual companies themselves, like URNM, the ETF, uh, we're also seeing a breakout to the upside of URNM. And this is just kind of, this is called the Livermore accumulation cylinder. Um, they're pretty rare. They happen at the, at. so w- when we look at these, these, these companies and these stocks and these ETFs, um, humans c- create these patterns and they are creating these patterns across the entire commodity complex. It, they're happening everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I'll just give you one that's got a little bit more history on it. Uh, we'll do COPX. Um, if we t- take a big kind of view on this, this is a double bottom. That's what these little scoops are. Uh, I call it the, the booty bottom pattern. Uh, it's the double bottom where... You, you come in, you get this lead-in pattern, and you do a W pattern. You break out, and then you get this one kind of retest, which is right there, and then you start to break higher. Um, we're seeing it in copper mining companies. We're seeing it in, and tell me if you can recognize this pattern, it's the same pattern in rare earth metals, and we're, we're at that retest location. 
it's happening in, and this got this has a little bit more history, URA. So we, we go downward, we go sideways in a basing pattern. It breaks the basing pattern. It does one little retest, and now we're breaking out again to the upside. Uh, URA, I mean, this thing looks, from a technical analysis standpoint, looks ridiculously awesome. Mm -hmm. Like this thing looks about as good as you can get it. Uh, so we're, we're looking at all these different chart patterns, and they're happening across all of the commodities. This isn't just one sector, um, which makes me think that this is maybe perhaps monetary driven uh, or something in the system uh, that's happening. And I, I, whatever that is, because it's happening across all of the commodity um, companies mm -hmm. and ETFs. So, um, yeah, uranium, if you were to look at some of these other ETFs, this is uranium versus XOP uh, ETF. And I use URNM. This is kind of the, the mining. You can see that that's also kind of broken a short term little trend line here to the upside. Uh, and it's starting to move higher. And again, guys, I'm not saying that this is going to go straight higher. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. It's going to grind its way up. So uh, if we get a pullback in the short term, don't be surprised by it as long as we stay above these trend lines. Mm -hmm. uh, so URNM is very much, and this is against REMX, and it's this is a pretty equal, you can just see we go sideways back and forth. Um, it's preferable to buy R REM, or URNM when it's down here. Uh, REMX is at the tops. And right now we're, we're kind of just coming back. But that's about the REMX, which is a rare earth metals. That's also looking pretty good as well. So we've got all of these powerhouse sectors and ETFs uh, and commodities all throwing bottoms all at the same time. Uh, so that is another indication, uh, I think, that we could be seeing an inflationary period coming because all of the people are lining up and investing, at least the smart money or institutional investors are starting to invest in the commodity sectors. Mm -hmm. Well, Andy, I think you you create a, a very compelling case for that. And and certainly all those all those ratios really show us exactly what you're saying there. And I think that's a, a pretty pretty good place to wrap up for today, unless you have anything else you'd like to share with us. Yeah, I would just say if you're an investor and you're trying to, to find returns, just make sure that you're chasing potential cash flows. If you're chasing dreams, if you're chasing stories, I think it's much harder to, to make money uh, than it is if you're chasing cash flow and the infrastructure is already in place because then it's just, it's just a matter of money rotating. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's just for new investors because I, I know a lot of investors, when they ask me to chart something, they'll say, can I chart this like small, obscure company that has no way of making money. I just think it's very difficult to make money going after those types of investments. At least me personally, that's that, that's been my case. <laughs> Excellent, Andy. Of course, you're available on Twitter at finding underscore finance, and you have created a, a website, finding-value.com. Anywhere else you'd like to point to your, your YouTube channel as well? Yeah, you can type in finding value finance on my YouTube channel if you want to watch uh, any of these clips. I do date, I try to release at least one daily. Uh, sometimes I do daily technical analysis updates. Uh, and that's, if you want to follow me there, you can go there and, and follow me there. Excellent. Andy, thanks so much for your time and sharing all your, all your knowledge and, and analysis with us today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on.
This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.